Hello everybody, I know what you're thinking. What are we gonna do? Today's the last day for OWL. I know, you're sad. I'm sad too. But I'm excited for us to, to take this journey together and uh, finish page, what is it, 77 through 80... 87, I guess. I'm John, uh, and at this point, if you don't know that, then you're crazy. And I'm excited to get started, so let's do it. This chapter is called Experiments with Eyes. If, as I suggested earlier, you set your own screech owl on your hand, get his or her attention fixed on your face, or on some other object of more than fleeting interest, and then slowly move your hand around about through short distances, you will notice something odd. The owl's head remains almost perfectly stationary, while the body gyrates under the very flexible neck. The owl switches the case with the familiar Hindu dancer, the side-winding head, and goes the dancer many dimensions better, right up, left down, front back, around about, pivot and tilt in any combination. It would take several sets of gyroscopes, don't ask me how many, to duplicate this stability in space, though obviously owl is using his eyes, not his balance organs. When his sight is not riveted to a spot in particular, owl does not play the game. It's as cute as all get out, but why does he do it? By way of oblique answer, imagine Owl on a swaying twig in a tree, moonlight and high wind, as he takes aim on a creeping mouse. His body vacillates while his head stays still. Alright, if he needs a fixed point from which to aim, he is admitting to a rigid type of tracking system. It's a little as though he has to aim his swoop the way you would aim a rifle and fire himself like it's bullet. Perhaps he does not enjoy the same big picture the adult human eye obtains, does not have quite the visual mastery of his own world, but if that fixed line of sight, the stable platform for the eyes, are necessary, why the head swing and bob before taking off? Wouldn't he get the same benefit from swaying around on his branch? No, when he bobs and swings his head, the muscle nerve circuits tell him just how much this way and that he has displaced his head, and he compares this displacement with how much things move in relation to each other out there. Then he knows what's what, or what's there. When the twig is tossing every which way in the wind, he is not producing the movements and so can't make any comparisons. It all seems pretty complicated. The mouse should escape before he's worked it all out, but even though Owl misses Douglas Fairbanks, and that one several times, he can still point with pride to the rest of his record. No misses. And I recall now, while Owl swings his head a moment before swooping, in the last seconds before he goes, his stare is fixed and fatal. And it's hard to gain a clear idea of the strengths and limitations of Owl's see-and-strike system. He markedly prefers an unmoving target. Unless very hungry, he will watch and watch some erratic prey, grasshopper or mouse, as it moves about. And then, the prey will stop and uncannily seem to wait for Owl to descend on it. While bragging about how exceedingly rare he misses, he forgets that his prey is dislocated and set loose in Owl's own territory. Having had to chase him down himself, I can tell you that even something like a grasshopper is easier to catch on a kitchen floor than it is in tall grass. On the other hand, Owl might remind us that he can pick a moth out of the air. I've seen you do it once, Owl, just exactly once. You were no flying ace. If it were urgent, presumably, he could sharpen the talent. Suppose that while Owl's in flight, his target does move, he can adjust, I've seen him do it, but his ability is limited. Running away is futile, but a quick last-second hop may be effective. As for evasive tactics, incidentally, it does really help to be one of a scattering flock. If we can use a single anecdote. Owl went for a moth, which happened to have landed among some paper patches a child had cut out. The downdraft stirred him up, though not the moth. Owl came down flat-footed in the air mists. I would say he looked foolish, but he put on the same old expression of acute ferocity. With him perched on my hand, zeroed in on some distant spot, I moved my hand half an inch toward that spot, half an inch back, while doing so. I sighted across the needle tip of his beak toward a point of reference. 
I will compensate. The tip almost stays exactly on that point. Does he do it by reacting to the flow of things in and out of the periphery of his vision? Or can he maintain that precise distance of eye to object by depth alone? I put a three-sided box over Owl to block the cues from the periphery and intend to move the box itself right along the hand Owl is perched on. Owl does not cooperate. It will not fixate. It becomes flighty. It is not his kind of experiment. Maybe we'll get back to it someday, but not today. Another experiment. We know that Owl tends to lean forward and nibble the finger or nose or almost anything benign which is brought up towards his beak. Slowly, therefore, I move my face up to Owl's, my own open eye going right towards his back. What will Owl do? First, let's throw in any fake suspense which might be building up. I was not going to risk a scratched eye for any ornithological or behavioral data that I could possibly think of. I was curious as to what Owl would do, but I was perfectly, perfectly certain as to what he would not do. Somehow, before going through with it, I must have registered more or less unconsciously the bird's solicitude for our eyes. Probably, it was from the way he harassed my face a few times as I was trying to nap. Think of gentle needles and less gentle tweezers. And from the way he fusses at eyebrows and eyelashes that I understood he was operating under a taboo. The one bit of anxiety concerned Owl's unreliable vision up close. As I approached, the flesh of forehead and cheek was all bunched up and ready to slam that eye shut, in spite of my certainty. I took no comfort from Conrad Lorenz's description of his jackdaws, who would groom around his eye in some detail. The daw and the owl among the birds stand apart in genealogy. The daw does well at close range. I'll admit, the beak began to loom larger and larger. Owl in good time turned his head away. But he is consistent, only what he does not do. The common response, especially the first time in a series of trials, is to turn his head to the side. Several times he has seized hold of some eyebrow. I did not like it the one time he pulled up my eyelashes as if to take the eyelid too. Again, he can't see well enough to know what he's doing at range for that kind of trick. Often, with an almost imperceptible nod, he tucks the point of his beak into his chest. Play the game too often and he simply stocks still. You want to poke your eye into the curve of his beak, that's your affair. Now that I think of it, the fact that Owl does close, or half closes his eyes when I groom around his head and neck, implies that maybe Screech Owls themselves don't trust each other's visions any too far. Summary of results. I conclude that while I carried out the investigation in part to find something about the bird, I did it mainly to have the encounter occur to be written down. Many behavioral experiments are performed in the same spirit. To court an experience so as to be able to write it down, not a good way to organize one's life. Okay, I was lying, guys. There's one more chapter. I thought that that... I didn't see this title. I, I'm really sorry. I'm going to be honest. I, I really messed up. So let's do it. Last chapter. Right here, right now. Me, you... Page 82, A Discussion of Tastes. Owl does not eat frogs because, in spite of their numbers around here, I won't give him one. Nor a spider. Can you imagine yourself watching while the bird tears apart and eats a large spider? Impossible. Before too long, I've got to figure out why not a spider, but yes to a beetle, however crackly. I note that even the most delicate person can watch a beetle or grasshopper in its last minutes with Owl, but many, like me, balk at the idea of the spider. I have not, and will not, describe the uproar, nor tell who took which sides when it became known Owl was to get his first mouse, but I will wonder why I'm willing to feed Owl the lovable mouth, the ugliest of caterpillars, massive beetles, even the remains of a fence lizard taken from a cat, but not a frog. Some kinds of furry caterpillar Owl will not eat, because I don't know why, because. Knowing some were supposed to be prickly, I went so far as to push them against my wrist in an act of raw courage, and found them indeed furry, but not prickly. What bothers Owl about them? Who knows? I'm not going to put them to the taste test. We have more toads than frogs. I was just barely able to bring myself to bring one to Owl, who captured and seized it up. He simply did not drop it. He whirled his head and threw it away, unharmed, and then stalked indignantly upright along behind it, as if to memorize forever. 
the pattern of anything so bad tasting. As if to, more likely, Owl's hunger moved him to track the enticing hop-hop motion while the association between the bad taste and the look of the toad blocked a second pounce. Personally, I'm in favor of toads. I cannot answer why I would offer one and not a frog. Most birds reportedly have poor senses of smell and taste. In comparison, Owl is something of a gourmet, which may seem like an outlandish claim in the light of the fact that Owl stole Grant's lucky rabbit's foot and ate it first skin, nails, bones, right down to the metal clip and one last nub of bone. He may lack the dewlaps and pouting lips of the gourmet, his attention may blaze too strongly out at things, but he does have a considerable tongue, sensitive bristles by the beak to help with texture and prominent nostrils. See, he's sampling some raw liver. He stares glumly into the middle distance a while, without moving, then lets it drop. Pork instead of beef. Cats, dogs, fish, turtles all seem to share this faint prejudice against pork liver. Any healthy appetite will overcome it, nonetheless is there. Even a hungry owl is slow to eat the red earthworm, usually stops at one or two. Robin food. The great gray nightcrawler, tougher and more vigorous, he grapples zestfully with as many as he's likely to get. Maybe he likes to see himself as an eagle killing a serpent. Come down from such pretensions, Owl. Remember, we've seen you and Jason's bull probing around for raw meat bits among the pellets, and taking pellets if necessary. I urge Owl to learn to like the red worms. They're every bit as good as the crawlers, I'm sure. Which is like the chain grocers urging me that rock lobster is every bit as good as Maine lobster. It happens that rock lobster and red worms are both easier to obtain. You and I, we probably prefer a lamb chop to peanuts or mint, except to the times when we will take a mint or peanut but not one more bite of chop. Of all the foods he knows in the world, Owl holds the most dear the mouse he's just killed. He's never more intractable than when he has one, but when not keenly hungry, he may well let one pass. He never refuses a moth. If the children have been successful hunters, Owl may leave the seventh grasshopper half-eaten. If the eighth is something different, well, I'm never too full for a katydid. The gourmet is discriminating in his taste, but some of the things he enjoys may go against public taste. I caught a few caterpillars of one and of one of the snow-tailed butterflies. An artistically gifted, demented child, not evolution, designed these things. Furthermore, they have scent horns, bulbous, bright-colored perturbances which pop out if you, at you from a recess in the head. Owl shuts his eyes when eating them, but of course he does so for everything. Among the moths which come to the outside lights is a series of fluffy, unalert, slow-moving creatures. Big of body, small of wing, decorated in white, black, and orange in widely varying proportions. They have in common a smell, something in between marigold and geranium. Of all the eager insect eaters which generally tend at the house, large tropical fish, turtles, transient reptiles, the doomed ducklings only owl eats and seems to like them, the caterpillars of some of these moths eat azaleas and vibraniums. Viburnums. Viburnums. Good riddance. Enlisting the insect eaters back there, I was greatly tempted to type in my daughter's name, and now what with all this mention of lepidit Lepidopterins. Lepidopterins, in it goes. Leah, at the age of three, ate the nourishing part of a large butterfly, which had been netted by a lepidopterist friend of mine while he was getting out while he was getting out more. She can no longer be considered insectivorous, however. Consider that Owl has been taken from his rightful place in the local ecology. Consider, but do not regret, because that local ecology is narrowing kingdom is a narrowing kingdom yielding over to the compressed brick soil, sick trees, and shriveled glass which the realtor leaves behind under the flag of suburban development. We, you too probably, live in what is becoming sparrow-robin cardinal land. Owl country is shrieking. It can spare one citizen. 
and in what is left of it nearby aliens appear. The subsidized predators, dogs and cats. The natives, owl and hawk, weasel and fox, owe their continuing survival to what they prey on. Our pets operate under no such debt or dependence. Like human beings, some hunt expertly and avidly. Some not at all, but they eat at home and at the end of the day. So, like, short, like deer shooters on opening date, they scour the environs in, in great numbers, and like deer shooters on rare occasions kill one another, but are on the clock and through the calendar drive out the native predator and decimate whatever is vulnerable to them, those that feed or nest or live on the ground or near it. When it comes to creatures like squirrels and mice, our hired scourges are almost totally incompetent, except my findings as if I were reporting on work trained by research people after years of census taking in our lot. The favored rodents are doing better each year. So are the moles. It is not because I'm a bird watcher that I regret the ripping out of owl country. I can call myself a bird watcher only because I can identify up to species like Tawi and Shrike in my own Peterson. On the other hand, my Aunt Mildred had to tell me what it was singing away at the oak, a wood thrush. What I regret is the exchange of forest and meadow for marigolds, telephone lines, rose gardens, gleaming with disinfectant, asphalt, those damn petunia patches. Anyway, owl has been removed from that picture, while in his stead the children and I, trying to cater to his preferences, exert an owlless pressure on the local ecology. Something I keep forgetting to try an owl, the monarch butterfly, which is reported to be inedible, so much so that the tasty viceroy butterfly supposedly benefits from its resemblance to the former. One utterly fearless investigator I read about, however, put the monarch to the taste test. Yeah, and described it as just as good as any other butterfly in his experience. Perhaps in season, owl can contribute to the resolution of this issue. There's a trick-or-treat in store for you, Owl. The last chapter, folks. Damn. This one is called... Owl Dies. In the middle of the summer, as I was working up the last of these notes and putting them through the typewriter, the subject died. A weak appetite one stifling night, he did not bother to walk over to pick up a moth I had brought him, which was unusual. Unwilling to waste what I'd caught him, I gave it to him. He took it down. As occasionally he would be after a big feed, he seemed dull and sluggish. He spent his customary many minutes examining a basin of water, deciding not to bathe. We let him free of his cage, told him good night. Even the morning was hot. Clever owl, we said, when we saw him standing in a basin of water, where he may well have spent the night. But it was unusual. And again, he seemed dull to the touch when I put him back in his cage. That afternoon, Connie called me. He's dying. And so it was. He grew weaker as I held him upright. The claws went dead. He kept on breathing, but then, as if looking it right in the face, he opened pupils, shuddered down, held, and finally expanded one last time. A swallowing. And that was that. The question of why, I asked our veterinarian at an autopsy. If he had any comment about the request, he kept it to himself and obliged, both macro and microscopically, but found no cause. Unacquainted with Owl, he wondered if the bird might have been panicked by something and died from shock, beating himself against bars or glass. I pointed out how uncharacteristic that would have been, and the talk ended somewhere after the mention of pesticides. Unlikely agents, since we did not use the persistent ones and rarely the others. But by their nature, impossible to rule out. Owl had no last surprise for us. He was found to be male. I typed the last pages, keeping the convention that he was still alive. There were more pictures scheduled to be taken, more investigations to be carried out. He has left a very small, blank, precisely owl-shaped hole in their daily routine. A discontinuity which things still get caught on. A memoranda. A feather may yet swirl from a suddenly open closet door, or come down with a book from the shelf, a fleck of lime in an angle somewhere. Punctured houseplants and page corners nipped off. 
We keep finding one more pellet. Will had just discovered how to make one of Owl's songs better than I could do by blowing in his hands. He'd be getting, at any rate, a higher percentage of answers. And still, he calls from time to time. As I walk by any porch light, automatically I check the area for any substantial night flower Owl may like. Cutting meat for the other animals, the knife sets for a piece of bite-sized Owl. And every now and then, someone asks about him. We've all missed that trivial, empathetic presence. Emphatic presence. By no means a domestic creature, neither was he simply a penned wild one. Wild and tame, he showed some of the best of both. He lived less than a year and a half. We take the shortness as a rebuke of some kind, but count that odd visit a minor privilege, an emblem of the household. Damn. Alright, that, my friends, was Owl. Thank you so much for uh, listening, for joining me, and I promise I have a lot more books to give you, so... Um, Exciting stuff, and have a nice night. Very sad ending there.